You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. So now we get to Ryan's favorite part. Now we're at the moment that everything changes. The second time curling's in the Olympics. So, what do you think, Ryan? Well, where should we start? Well, for, I, I guess you have some notes here on basically what allowed curling to conceivably be brought back into the Olympic program. Okay, so I've got... Okay. I mean, it a couple of ways, but I actually think the... The biggest thing is the way this sport evolves in the mid-20th century, right? So the original version is someone standing stationary and basically delivering a stone, standing up, using something called a crampet, which is a metal platform that attached to the ice. And the player would use like a pendulum swing and basically chuck it. A lot like the modern bowling delivery, but stationary. Um, the ice quality is poor. It's soft and slow. Sweeping doesn't really do all that much, and it's there to primarily remove debris from the ice. But I think a couple of big things happen. So one is artificial ice meant that we could, for the first time, make ice of better quality. So faster, it's able to keep it level, so it becomes easier to throw the stones, and so it becomes more predictable. Initially, they started using the same straw brooms that you would use to sweep the floor, and it was probably just to clear debris. But over time... Curlers discovered they could also make the stone slide further and affect how much the stone curls. And so the first, I guess the first version is the corn broom, which is like a tightly packed one that would kind of make this whacking sound, which is kind of, I kind of missed that sound from the beginning of curling, but that was, that was going out when I was picking up the game. That's been gone a long time now. But the second innovation is push brooms and they're first used in Europe in the 1970s. And this this is probably the broom you may have first seen, Ryan. It's like kind of made of horsehair. Looks mm. looks a bit more like a, a, a tall brush. And that that actually made it a bit more effective and kind of made it possible to carry the stone a bit further. Mm. Um, and then they get the broom technology kind of develops in a lot of ways. So they get synthetic broom heads and handles that are made lighter and lighter, like, like in a lot of sports. And then contemporary brooms can make a, a stone slide six to eight feet further and they can probably make a difference of a foot or two in terms of how much it curls. We can, we can talk about Broomgate a little bit later, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second... How long, is, how long is this podcast? I don't know. How long do you want me to go? You asked me to do a history podcast. It could be a long time. <laughs> and then I think the other big innovation is the slide. So the Crampet... And actually, be, again, begins with a technological thing. So the cramp is this old metal thing that you can't really push off of. But then someone invents a hack, which is like a rubber starting block frozen of the ice. And in the 1930s, a curler named Ken Watson, he figured out that because his shoe was made with, of leather and uh, the ice is slippery, he could slide on his leather sole, pushing out of this rubber hack, and you get an early version of the delivery you see on TV, that low lunge sliding across the ice. Okay, so when that happens, do people freak out? Yes. Because 
How long was that illegal? I guess someone does that, and they're like, "What I'm assuming because I know how sports work, and they're incredibly conservative." Just everyone goes, "Absolutely not! Yeah, (laughs) never, never do that again. You're not allowed here anymore." Yeah, is that a good read on this? Yeah, so I think I think a couple of things. So first of all, like this, the stereotype was, and in some ways maybe still is, is that curling was like an old man's game, right? It's just the thing that old guys do. Ken Watson was young. And this was like, I think, first of all, because it was more athletically demanding and you got more accurate, you get younger people picking it up and they would then just destroy the older guys, right? And so the delivery itself became quite controversial. So in one sense, it became controversial because you could, it wasn't just Watson, but a little bit later in the 1950s, curlers, 40s and 50s, curlers began to slide further and further and further. And so then, I can't remember what prior it was, but in like the either late 40s or early 50s, a curler was able to slide all the way from one end to the other. And the stone of things. So that that's then, okay, that's, that's too much of a slide. So then... They, they introduced something called the hog line rule, which you have to release the stone before the, the near hog. Do you know what the hog line is? Or? Uh, yeah, well, it's the it's the line where you have to let go. Yeah. It's basically the foul line in bowling yeah. is the equivalent, right? Exactly. So then it became you had to let go of that line. And actually, initially, you had to stop sliding at that line. Like if you slid past the line, that was a foul, even regardless of where you let it go. They, they've eventually kind of gone to the modern thing where you can slide past the line and let it go. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe they should use that to bring up scoring, Ryan. What do you think? Go back to that rule. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that mentioned. I think it was. A, I want to say it was Kevin Palmer who said that this would solve a lot of. Kevin Palmer runs a uh, another podcast. Uh, two of them actually, Curling History uh, and um, Rock Logic. Rock Logic. Yeah, yeah. So he he's uh, he does a couple other podcasts out there, and he he's a he's a better historian than me of the game. So you should have had him, Ryan. anyway um so the final major innovation comes with the slide comes in what jonathan you you don't know if i asked him or not (laughs) i don't that's a good point (laughs) that's true all right so uh the final bit i think is that um do you want me to do more about the rules, or do you want me just to jump ahead to the 19, 1980s now? Curling got it. I'll say we jump ahead. Okay, yeah, we're running along here. Okay, so I think the eight, so basically curling is first introduced as an Olympic sport in nineteen eighty eight, and um, the, as a as a demonstration sport, right? And it, basically, what happens is when a country hosts an Olympic event. Olympics, they get to pick a couple of demonstration sports, and so Canada picked curling, and they picked it with a very explicit kind of hope of getting curling in the Olympics. Um, and part of, and so they basically had to battle two major perceptions: one that it's not a real sport, and then two, what is this thing? Was kind of it's too big, <laughs> big obstacles. And in a certain sense, I guess curling's never really had overcome that those issues sure well and also if this was 88 this is what calgary right yeah they had to deal with uh the filming of cool runnings happening at as well that was tough (laughs) the the documentary yeah that was uh a lot going on there so that's that's tough i think that actually matters i think that actually matters because the the international olympic committee really didn't like 
either cool runnings or Eddie, Eddie the Eagle was the other event from those games. And so if you actually, yes. there was some Olympic documentary I was watching and they, and they were like, they were very worried the Olympics were going to become a joke. Like personally as a kid, I thought this was amazing. Like I loved Eddie sure. the Eagle and uh, I loved the Jamaican bobsled team. And curling. And curling. So yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah. <laughs> I think we actually, we need a, we need another movie just about how, just about how the, the 88 Olympics just made every old white guy mad. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the fashion, too. I mean, that was just furious. Yeah. All right. Ryan wants me to talk about the Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> so th- I really do think that this is like a pivotal moment in curling history. And I'm going to make some curling people mad. And I'm going to say some nice things about a man named Warren Hansen. (laughs) (laughs) Are those two things you're doing them both at once or (laughs) both of them at the same time? So I'm going to make some curling people mad by saying some nice things about Warren. All right. I'm going to stop you right here. This is not about trench warfare, right? This is something else. Who's, who's like a famous sports administrator who's like a villain so that's what that's what i'm saying and that's that's really where we connect the dots every every sport that has become a major success or has had a major social impact has had at least one figure in its history that either through just force or by cult of personality dragged that sport kicking and screaming into the modern era. Uh, in the NFL, that's Pete Rozelle. In the NHL, it's Gary Bettman. Um, in wrestling, it's Vince McMahon. <laughs> and No, that's, that's, no, no definitely. It definitely but. is. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the and, Warren Hansen Vince McMahon analogy. <laughs> and, and curling's Vince McMahon is this administrator from curling Canada named Warren Hansen, who desperately wanted to see curling in the Olympics and knew that part of getting curling into the Olympics would mean battling an image problem. And one of the image problems that he thought curling had, depending on whose version of history you read, was that at the time, curling had a lot of fat dudes. And so when Canada went to pick its, uh, pick its team for the 1988 uh, Olympics, you had the 87 Canadian Olympic trials and what has now been referred to as the Battle of the Bulge, where you had one of the more successful and most boisterous uh, people in curling history, uh, a man named Ed Wernick, uh, going up against Warren Hansen. And the fact that Ed, Ed claims that part of participating in the Olympic trials, he was required to lose a certain amount of weight. Yeah. And he, his rebuttal on this was that that would not affect whether or not he could be the best curler in the world because at the time he kind of was yeah I, I, it's a little i mean okay so i'll say two things uh we'll give kevin palmer a shout out because he interviewed paul savage yes. who was on that team he's got like a 90 minute interview with paul savage so you get you get the team wearing perspective 
And I believe Kevin has actually made it like his life mission to interview everyone who played in these Olympic trials. So as deep in the weeds as we're getting into, if you want to get really deep in the weeds, go listen to Kevin's uh, series of interviews with players from the 87. And he he interviewed Warren Hansen. And so you you, you listen to those two back to back, you get these two perspectives on the story. I, I think and actually, the, and then the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Truth somewhere in the middle, but but they, they were so the curling. I think Warren's, at least if I recall correctly, Warren said he they had curling Canada had a vote. He wasn't really in favor of the forced weight loss thing, but he was the one who was compelled to come out and say they had to drop thirty pounds by the trials, or else they wouldn't be eligible. And, and they actually did. <laughs> so Paul Savage is like, he said, well, if that's going to take to go to the Olympics, he just went to the gym and kind of ate salad every day for, for six months. And <laughs> and he said, Ed Wernick being Ed just refused to eat and didn't exercise because <laughs> still lost the weight too. Any, anyway, they didn't, long story short, they that team did not qualify for the Olympics, but it is the moment where, and I think that's been a core tension all the way through is this, what does the sport need to do to get accepted in the Olympics and get accepted on TV versus what do the curlers want to do? Sure. <laughs> so, so, Jonathan, give us an idea. Uh, and really, before 88, how many professional curlers do you think there were in the world, Jonathan? Uh n- that's it. I would say almost none. I think m- maybe Ed Luca, which was trying to be professional and was good enough to kind of win enough on tour to pay for going on tour. But I don't think he, he didn't make all that much money. Wernick. So we're looking at maybe one. Maybe one. In 1988, maybe one professional curler. So give yeah. us an idea of the competitive landscape. Like if you were a curler who tried to compete at the highest level, give us an idea of what their week-to-week um, schedule was leading up to what would have been their biggest event at the time, the Canadian Championship, uh, which on the men's side is called the Briar, and on the women's side is now called the Scotties Tournament of Hearts. They, I mean, it depends on the team. I think, I think, I was the, another era curl from this era. Era would say that he would probably pay four or five tournaments in the autumn, which would have been a lot, uh, and then. Come January, they would have entered the playdown process, probably being at their club, and they'd have to win a series of tournaments from January through March to win the Briar. And if they won that, they got to go to the Worlds. So you were, you know, everyone would have a job, and uh, you'd you'd probably have to have a job that gave you a lot of time off. Even even later than this, I think Jeff Stoughton. There's a story about Jeff Stoughton who was a good curler in the '90s, and his team mostly worked at Air Canada. And when they won the Briar in like 93, sometime in the 90s, they basically had run out of days off work because they <laughs> they'd spent it all, they had to spend all their days off to curl to get to the Briar, to win the Briar. And uh, because it was such a big story, Air Canada gave them more time off to go curl at the Worlds. But it was like they basically had no days off left. They had to spend it all curling. So that was like people had wow. day jobs. This was what they do in their spare time. They'd probably play, you know, they play the spunt, the tournaments they could, and they'd probably throw. They would throw. I think the top players would always throw a lot of stones at their club, and they'd probably play, you know, a couple of weeknight leagues, and that's it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Where do you want to go now, Ryan? 
1998. 1998. So, 1998's the first year curling's an official Olympic sport. The medals are fairly uneventful. So, basically, the traditional curling powers, Canada, Switzerland, Scandinavian countries all win medals. And the, the early Olympics are still dominated largely by amateurs, but Canada's two representatives, I think, um, are both significant. So uh, Mike Harris wins the trials in 1998, and he's he was a good competitive curler, but he hadn't even qualified for the briar by that point. And he was he'd done that by winning a tournament that qualified him for the trials and winning the trials. Um, lost lost the gold medal game, but I, that had more to do with the fact that he actually got sick. I think they, I think had they been healthy, they would have rolled. I think it was just a bit of bad luck. The women's side, there's Sandra Schmerler, who had dominated the women's game um, through the 90s, had kind of won three Scotties, won the Olympic trials, and then she's, she's kind of a legend in Canadian curling circles because kind of unfortunately after that, basically, I think like, only a year or I think basically a year later she caught cancer and, and uh, passed away two years after winning her, her medal. And she, cause she, because I think a, she was, it's hard to explain. Cause I think Ryan wasn't, wasn't really following her at the time, but basically in the nineties, the Schmerlo team would show up at the Scotties, destroy everybody, um, win, win everything. And then, uh, you know, they, they were just kind of like, they're like the Patriots, <laughs> I guess is the best analogy, right? Although I think a lot more liked perhaps than the Patriots, but maybe, maybe not if you're in Boston, but you get the idea. And so for her to then do this thing that had never been done before of winning a gold medal and then to pass away so soon after that, it's like um, like the whole thing. It's kind of like maybe the best analogy would be Lou Gehrig or something, right, Ryan? Yep. Yeah. So um, where do you want to go next? you want to talk about the professionalization of the sport or do you want to jump to the boycott? Uh, professionaliz- well, professionalization of the sport. Okay. <laughs> it's a much, it's a much more pleasant topic. I think they're, they're, inter- they're interrelated, uh, right? And so basically at this point in time, curling st- in Canada especially starts to get really full. So there's, there's like a, the 1997 Briar, I think is the key moment for this is that they sell out the Calgary Saddle Dome for the Briar final. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's totally sold out. Big time fans. And so Curling Canada and TSN, which is Canada's version of ESPN, and CBC all realize they can start showing a lot more curling because it gets good ratings on TV. And um, they start doing a lot more um, big events. Like when I was growing up as a kid, it was like you could watch the Briar, the Scotties, the World Championships, and that was it. And they do a skins game, but it was kind of a made-for-TV thing before Christmas. And so starting in the 90s, they just start adding more and more events. Um, so as the money goes up, because the TV money pours in, the players start complaining that they're not getting a, a big cut, right? So back in the 60s and 70s, you'd ba- but it was basically gambling. So as a curler, you'd put money into a pot pan entry fee, and they just divvy it up amongst the winners, and the club might top it up a bit. You'd also not necessarily just play for cash. So a classic kind of bond spiel was like what was called a car spiel. So you'd have a local car dealer offer up four car prizes as first prize to entice the good teams to enter the tournament, and the club would use this event as a fundraiser, right, and try to kind of pay for the tournament through bar sales to try to help the club's finances. Awesome. 
it's in the 70s and early 80s that major tournaments started shifting to cash. And so I think like Ed Waronick, Ed Lukowicz, Al Hackner, like this generation of crows from the 80s, they were kind of the legends when I was growing up. And I think Pat Ryan was like the, the one who really made the switch. They basically see this maybe not as a way to make winning primarily off the winnings, but they, they see this as like a hobby that starts to really pay is basically the way I put it. Like Pat Ryan still had a day job, but he, he, he back in the seventies, it was like, let's party. And if we win a car, that's awesome. And in the eighties, it became, no, we're going to take this seriously because we want to win some cash and became kind of like a lucrative, lucrative uh, side hustle at the very least. Um, and so the, what's, what's weird though, is that, the prize money actually peaks in the 80s and 90s, right? And so this is the moment where the curlers, and Ed Luke, which is the one who really leads this, want to try to set up a professional curling tour. Quick, quick, quick aside, Jonathan and I have an Ed Lukowicz episode that we recorded <laughs> last year that uh, goes even beyond curling with with Ed. You may want to you may want to take a look, take a listen to that. Yeah, cool. We mainly talk about space. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, so you kind of see three things going on at once. You have the Olympics kicking off. You have this kind of cash tour kicking off and you have TV money kind of pouring in. And so the curlers start to get upset that, that especially in Canada, that curling Canada is taking, making a lot of money and not giving very much back to the players. And so the curlers basically decide to go on strike. So they went on strike in the early two thousands for two seasons. Well, did, Let's let's define the curlers. The curlers, okay. There's about thirteen, teams, eighteen teams, eighteen, 18 teams, teams. Yeah, my apologies. Eighteen teams, and so what's it? What's interesting is it actually a sports management. I think it was IMG, but I'm, I'm just like speaking from memory here. But it was a sports management agency that that kind of supported them. And what they did is they they said they basically said we're not going to enter the briar. Instead, we're going to set up our own rival curling tour, pro tour. Called the called the Grand Slam of Curling, and they ran four tournaments on TV with these eighteen teams, and they uh-huh. sold that the TV rights to that to a rival network. But the deal oh, was okay. that when they joined it, they had to sign a contract saying they wouldn't play in the Briar, and so part of it was that this rival TV network would get the the exclusive rights to to show these games. Um, so that goes on for two years, and then eventually, the, and actually, again, it was Warren Hansen and, and Kevin Martin who uh, were at opposite ends of this. So, uh, and they now have a podcast together. So they've they've obviously <laughs> clearly patched things up. But um, that boycott, I think, really, at least in Canada, really kind of gave shape to the modern game. So now, the top teams all play on this Grand Slam of Curling tour that has depending on the year, somewhere between five and eight tournaments given the year. Um, and then they enter the Curling Canada events, to, which are kind of more for glory. Canada now pays out a significant cash prize to the winners. So like now it's it's about $200,000 for the winners of the Scotties and the, the Briar. They wouldn't have won anything back in, back in the 90s. So that's a big jump. And... Uh, I guess relatively good coexistence, Ryan. What do you think? 
between the the players and curling Canada? Yeah. Or you think it's going to break now? <laughs> Again, there's a bit of grumbling, but I don't feel like it's bad as much. No, it's. It, I'd say it's much better than it has been for some time. Yeah, it's that's kind of wild. Like I, I didn't expect the end of that story to be. Yeah, they both still exist. Like usually that that sort of thing starts with a a resolution in mind, right? Where like yeah. someone will come to their senses, we will increase the prize fund, and now so they just coexisted for a couple of decades now, and they're just still. Yeah. Like at what point did the rule the rules soften where they could you know these teams could enter the Briar and it just became a lucrative thing to be in this World Cup? So I mean, there's a, yeah, we could do a deep dive on the history of the boycott. The the thing that was interesting is they they timed the boycott very smartly. So they timed it for the run into the 2002 Olympics, and this tournament, this kind of breakaway tour, took the qualification tool, uh, tournaments with them. And they also took all the good teams. So Curling Canada basically had to let them kind of continue to exist for Olympic access. And so what's kind of happened is Curling Canada runs the Olympics because they're the national governing body. And they control the events that you need to qualify for for the Olympics. But this rival tour kind of runs the cash pro tour that, that kind of runs alongside it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So everyone more or less got what they wanted, kind of. Kind of, like the big thing the players wanted is what's called cresting rights, but but so basically they wanted to be able to sell advertising on their uniforms, and they're still oh, okay. not allowed to do that um, because Curling Canada's view is we we just want to have all the advertising rights we can. We don't want to give that to the players, but the the players now get a lot more money and support out of Curling Canada than they did before. Okay, well you think you think about it the the mid nineties in late 2000s across the sports landscape were not exact. No sport was exactly good when it came to labor relations with their players from the mid nineties through to the, the early two thousands. I mean, we sure. lost a world series. We, we lost an entire, an entire NHL season. This, this was, this was pretty regular and it, it just did. It, it's something that happened in curling as well. Yeah. Hmm. So, I think that's the kind of Canadian domestic front. I think international curling really takes off after 2006. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I've kind of been going back and looking at old Olympic stuff. Um, so Brad Gusha, who just won the Canadian Olympic trials, he wins the Canadian Olympic trials in 2006. He's a young team, and he, he was kind of an underdog then. He, he basically mows through the Olympic field. And if you go, the, all the Olympic clips are up on YouTube for some reason from 2006. And the international teams, just to be blunt, are not that good. They're, they're mostly people from like, they're basically amateurs from countries that don't have a strong curling tradition. And Gushu, I, I think they give up, drop one game, but they just kind of roll through. Um, but after that Olympics... A, in the U.S., I think 2006 is the year that curling really breaks through in the U.S. consciousness, wouldn't you say, Ryan? 2000... Torino. I would, I would actually, no, I would actually go one cycle further back okay. in 2002 because, that, because the 2002 Olympics were in the U.S., oh. so you had television coverage that was... That, that matched up with US time zones and you had more coverage because it was because it was a domestic Olympics. 
Um, and then that carried over into Torino and they started showing more of the sport in 2006. Yeah. I, I was going to say it was Pete Fenson uh, and Schuster winning the bronze in 2006, but maybe you're right. It's 2002. But, but anyway, the point is that like, basically if you watch a clip of curling at the 2006 Olympics and you watch it at 2010 Olympics, you're going to be like, what is going on here? Like, it's not, the players are not, they're not super athletic in 2006. The top teams are all jacked in 2010. Um, the international teams are a lot stronger. Um, the games are a lot kind of more intense Canada, Canada gets bronze, silver, but um, and kind of the women's team loses to Sweden, but the field's deeper, and so I think that the big change in my mind happens in that quad from 2006 to 2010. And the the other big change I think internationally is that the national governing bodies realized how much money was at stake for them by professionalizing their operations. And that's really where you start to see change. You see, you see change in the U.S. from 2010 to 2014 with the introduction of an Olympic trials, whereas before it was just whoever won nationals the year that it was an Olympics. You were the you were the team that that got sent, and that changed in b- between 2010 and 2014. Um, and, re- and really, it was it was across the board. You see a change in the way that Great Britain selects its Olympic teams where it's really more of a selection rather than a, rather than a play down situation, just because, you know, these number, these governing bodies realize how much is at stake for them now. Yeah. And, I, and that's really the, that's really the, the biggest change yeah. from, from curling getting into the Olympics to now and the professionalization of the sport is it, it is truly no longer in amateur competition. And I actually think the U.S. got caught flat-footed, that, that basically the U.S. is solid kind of metal contender on the cusp in 2002, 2006, and then 2010 and 2014, they kind of finished last, right? And it's like these, it's like these notorious results. So John Schuster went from bronze to last, last, and then kind of redeems in 20. Uh, 2018. But I, my read is that USA curling just didn't keep up the times and a lot of the European countries and then Asia comes on. So China starts throwing money at curling, which kind of in the mid 2000s would have sounded weird. But 2008, uh, Betty Wang wins uh, the women's, um, women's gold medal, the women's world championship. And so China starts playing competitively and early, two, early 2010s, Japan and Korea start coming on. So you now have all these countries and it's all Olympics. They're just like they, if a country can get qualification for an Olympics, then their national Olympic committee will throw millions of dollars at them to run their program. Yeah, it it does seem like, you know, much like every Olympic sport, just the infusion of money changes everything. And, And I guess, you know, for these traditional powers, like, you know, with, with Canada, it's, it's, yeah, it's about money on like a, making it able to be not the national lacrosse league, right? Like that's, there's that difference between like, uh, is this a weekend thing or is this forever? But I I mean, it seems like companies, especially, or not companies, countries that are looking at metal count and wants to make that number go up a little bit more. It's only a few million dollars, right? To to make this sort of thing happen. Is is that a fair read on it? Yeah, I'd say so. It's, um, 
Yeah, I mean, and so countries that you didn't, like Russia did not really have a curling program prior to Sochi. And now mm-hmm. Russia's got, you know, one of the top men's, one of the top women's teams in the world. And so that's just, that's just eight years. Um, I'm trying to think about it. What about some other countries that really come on strong, Ryan? Can you think of? Well, if you, if you want a really wild aside in the relatively recent history of Russian curling, uh, there's a podcast called Stone and Straw where a guy named uh, John Cullen interviews various basically interesting cur- curlers from from around the sport. And he interviews uh, a man named Jason Gunlickson, who is currently a professional curler, actually recently just participated in the Canadian Olympic trials, but in the run-up to Sochi was hired by uh, the Russian curling federation to move to russia and basically he was going to be their hand-picked team to represent them in sochi and through a series of wild happenstances he uh he came back to canada very soon after going over to russia (laughs) (laughs) interesting yeah yeah but as but as far as as far as other other countries um i mean you look at on the women's side, Korea and Japan winning medals uh, in Pyeongchang. Yeah, um, Italy is slowly professionalizing their uh, operations, uh, and I think that they're they'll peak around the time that Milan Cortina runs around rolls around in twenty twenty six. I mean, you've seen the Netherlands at the men's world championships, so. Um, so yeah, it's it's really a, a wide range of different countries that uh, have have risen up the ranks here lately. Yeah, and I, I think for kind of going by Olympic cycles, so in twenty ten Canada goes gold, silver. Twenty fourteen they'd go double gold, right? And I think Canada, the view with most Canadians is we're still the dominant country at this sport. 2018, they don't make the podium in men's or women's. They still get gold in mixed doubles, which is a new sport. But like they, they and they sent their two best, they, arguably their two best teams. Like no one was disappointed with who they sent. Um, and that was that was a disappointment, but it, I think it was also a wake up call in the sense that like all no other country is going to give you an inch now. They're they're all there. I think just to give you a sense of how much has changed in the in the last quad. So Canada, we, the Canadians had their like national trials the day before we're recording this, and they the winners were Jennifer Jones, who's won six Canadian national championships. I can't remember how many worlds she won a gold in 2014. And on the men's side, it's Brad Gushu, who's won a world championship, three Canadian championships, and a gold medal in 2006. And I don't think either of them are clear favorites um, to win it all. Would you say, Ryan? Uh, Gushu, uh, Gushu's one of the favorites. I don't yeah. think there's a clear favorite on the men's side. Yeah, I, I think I think you'd easily have to go in and say it's uh, Scotland, Sweden, or at least equal shots with Canada, and then there's a, a tear down with like the U.S., um, Switzerland, who'd also I think have a legitimate shot of of winning a gold, right? And the women's, I think, I think you know Canada Canada hasn't really won many gold medals in women's curling and in ages, right? So um, that's really a sense of the kind of growth of the game that now, now there's four or five countries going in. Huh? But the team they're sending, their team, the yeah. team they're sending is the team that won in 2014. 
They won in 2014, yeah. I, I'm not saying they're, they're like going to go last place, right? But the... You know, they could they could both definitely win it all, but they're not guaranteed. Whereas if you went back to 2010, it was a major disappointment when Canada didn't double gold, right? They got gold silver, and that was the Canadian reaction was like upset. I think now it, only the most fanatical Canadian curling fans is kind of expecting expecting that outcome. Yep, and that's uh, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to the way that curling spread at the beginning, right, Jonathan? Uh, imperialization and uh, immigration. And the Olympics has done that uh, even more so than it did uh, there initially. So, yeah, I think. Yeah, so just like as you, as you said, nothing, nothing is new under the sun. Nothing is new under the sun. <laughs> and it was, I mean, most of these programs have Canadian coaches who they've, who these federations have hired away. And to be honest, it's very hard to make a living as a curling coach in Canada, but it's quite easy to make a, a living if you're a good curling coach in say China or Italy or Russia or all these other places. Sure. So you had professionalization sense. of the players and now professionalization of the coaches. So that is kind of, that's your, maybe not uh 5,000 foot level, but somewhere <laughs> in between, uh, somewhere in between, uh, ground level and the 5,000 foot level view of the history of curling. Ryan, what, uh, what was the most interesting thing that we covered here? And is there anything before we head out that, uh, that you have a question about before we leave? Uh, I mean, I have many questions, but I also understand this, <laughs> oh, no. this can't be, this can't oh, be three no. hours. And so I'm, I'm going to, going to keep it short. Um, I, I honestly, I think the, the sort of like labor relations in, in Canada is really, really fascinating. Um, cause I have sort of seen similar things with, like I said, lacrosse, I used to cover it, uh, in Buffalo and even like women's hockey now is sort of going through a very similar, um, sort of thing. And so I, I would love to, to listen to another podcast by you guys uh, about that. But overall, I mean, I'm the technology is the really interesting thing, right? Like, like, <laughs> and the rule changes, like suddenly, I, I guess it never really occurred to me that, you know, you, they were essentially swinging what would be a bowling ball. And then at some point someone said like, well, what if we just, what if it started on the ice? Yeah. And then, and what if we also were like, that'd be way more accurate. Right. And then of course a lot of people yelled <laughs> while, and like, like I'm just picturing that I think is the most enjoyable, yeah. the, the enjoyable thing I'm going to take away from this. So yeah, I, 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 if you ask me like, what's the moment in history, in curling history that I wish I could be at. Number one might, number one would probably be Schuster winning gold in Pyeongchang. Number two might be the first time Ken Watson slid really far in front of a bunch of old dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be there for that. Just absolutely losing their minds. Yeah. Uh, we didn't get into Broomgate, did we? We totally missed it. Uh, I was like, no. <laughs> Long story short, technology advanced really, really far, really quickly. Everyone had to call a quick timeout. We decided that there are some broom fabrics that uh, borderline on cheating uh, and manipulating the ways that stones can travel, um, even if they've been thrown poorly. And we decided to decided to ban those from major international and national competition. Although, by God, I still use it in my club games. (laughs) (laughs) 
Did I cover most? Basically, again, a lot of old people got mad. Right. That sounds reasonable. Yes. Yeah. Is that basically it, Jonathan? I mean, yeah. I mean, I, this time it was actually the players got mad because it became basically what happened is they figured out that if you had a really scratchy surface under your broom, um, you could angle it. You could sweep in a certain angle that would get the stone to do what you wanted. So you could actually they call it joystick curling, and and there's some videos <laughs> online. It's it's quite quite crazy what you can do with it. And then it got. So it basically turned out that one broom, some curlers figured out that uh, they could do a little bit of an effect with this. And then people who weren't sponsored by that broom company got mad. And then the rival broom company designed their own broom head that was like what that broom was doing, but like on steroids. And then they're just like, well, we can just do this too. And so it became this kind of, and at that point in time, it wasn't banned it all in the rule book so you could see how quickly okay. there's no rule cap and you, it just became like this crazy arms race very quickly so interesting yeah so yeah right. well it sounds like another episode at some point totally. sure. yeah yep. yeah yep and hey hey i might i might cut it <laughs> <laughs> i've got about 30 minutes worth of stuff to cut yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right Ryan, please tell everyone where they can find you uh, on the internet and where they can read and listen to your stuff. Sure, yeah. On uh, on Twitter, uh, I'm at Ryan Nagelhout, uh, N-A-G-E-L-H-O-U-T. Uh, the Goose's Roost is the, the website that I uh, still write for. I do some freelance writing and stuff, but social media is the place to find it. And we have a Patreon for our podcast and writing, uh, patreon.com slash the Goose's Roost. No apostrophes. That's not how URLs work. So, yeah, and uh, and I mean, I'm sure I'll be retweeted a couple times by you guys because that's how uh, guest things work, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Ryan, thank you so much for joining us for this Odyssey. Uh, I know it was intense uh, and a little bit more than than we all expected. <laughs> no, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I had a, a lot of fun learning. So. All right. Uh, enjoy the Olympics. You can uh, get in touch with us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Please check out all of our other Welcome to the Olympics, Welcome to Curling episodes. Uh, and we will talk to you all again real soon. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.